Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And a couple of years ago, I did a pair of episodes about how stuff works and how I and several of my coworkers transitioned from being on the editorial staff of a website to becoming podcasters and producers in a podcast network. And I got a request from Chad Ingalls on Twitter to follow up that story because a couple years have gone by and some other stuff has happened. And besides, while I talked mostly about the experience of writing and recording at the company, I didn't really go into as much of the background of the company itself as I could have. So rather than just do a follow-up, I'm kind of doing a big-picture journey of how stuff works up to today. But there's going to be a lot of uh, high-level stuff because there's no point in, in getting down and dirty with every single era of how stuff works. So here's an episode about what's been going on over the last several years. Now, to give the quick rundown, Marshall Brain, and yes, that is his real name, founded the How Stuff Works website back in the late 1990s, though it wasn't an honest-to-goodness business just yet. Marshall Brain had taught computer science at North Carolina State University prior to working on the website, and he wanted to create a website that could give clear, concise explanations for different subjects. Essentially, it would grow into this effort to demystify the universe one topic at a time. And it would include articles and illustrations to really break down, well, how stuff works. One of the earliest and most successful articles was about car engines. And it would sort of establish the model for all future How X Works style articles on the site. Brain raised funds in the effort to launch How Stuff Works as a business. And with around $5 million in investments, he launched How Stuff Works, the company, in January 2000. He was able to secure investments to get things in motion, and by 2001, the company had grown to nearly 40 employees. And the goal was still the same. It was to create engaging, easy-to-understand articles explaining the universe one topic at a time. But while the site was creating content, it was having trouble attracting advertisers and making enough revenue through web advertisement to support operations. And that made it necessary to seek additional rounds of funding or go out of business. The company would also have to downsize, laying off about half the staff. And I guess I could explain really quickly how web advertising works. I'm sure most of you have at least a a basic understanding of it. Typically, for a website like this, you were selling some sort of real estate on the web page. It might be the right rail, it might be a banner ad, it might be a pop-up ad. And you get paid for the number of page views uh, that the web page with that advertisement gets. So the more people who view that page, the more money you make. Sometimes advertisers also will include something about click-through. So instead of the number of page views, it's how many people actually clicked on the ad to go to whatever the the ad was leading. So in those cases, you have to hope for a viewer action or a visitor action rather than just viewing the page. So that was essentially the basis for all web revenue for a very long time. It's changed a little bit, although web advertising still plays an incredibly important part in uh, in generating money for sites that are on the web, like news sites and things like that. 
So Marshall Brain had initially served as the CEO of this company, but he stepped aside for Marco Freganal, a co-founder of the company, to take over. And he would leave in 2001, Marco, that is. And Dean Jordan, who had served as the president for the Carolina Hurricanes, the sports team, became the new CEO of the company. Jordan arranged to have a private company called the Convex Group purchase How Stuff Works before he departed and was replaced by a guy named Joe Kissack. Now, the purchase price for How Stuff Works was reported to be a bit more than a million dollars, according to the Business Journal. Investors in the company were assigned promissory notes that it, they had the potential to pay off big time if the Convex Group were to sell How Stuff Works to a different company. More on that in just a little bit. So How Stuff Works had been based in Cary, North Carolina, which is just outside Raleigh. The Convex Group was a group of investors based in Atlanta, Georgia. And at the helm of the Convex Group was a guy named Jeff Arnold, the founder of WebMD. So Arnold had founded WebMD in 98, and it was phenomenally successful. It propelled Arnold into an entrepreneurial role, and he started a company called Lidrock, which used to put CDs in the lids of drinks sold at places like movie theaters. Yes, we used to have Lidrock CDs in our office once upon a time. He became chairman and CEO of How Stuff Works, and the headquarters moved to Atlanta, though a lot of people still stayed in North Carolina. The site did grow a bit in those early years. It really peaked in 2005, a couple of years before I would come on board, at least in terms of traffic going to the website. But then traffic began slowing down, and the company had to deal with the implications of that, including reduced revenue. And if your costs remain the same, but your revenue is going down, you start to realize you're going to need to make some changes pretty soon or you'll be on a slippery slope to bankruptcy. Now, when I joined How Stuff Works in the winter of 2007, February 15th, 2007, I still remember it. Uh, at that point, it was still under the umbrella of the Convex Group. Jeff Arnold maintained an office in our headquarters. It was a really big office, pretty swanky, actually. We would eventually turn that office into a break area that nobody on the editorial side ever really used. It was really nice, had ping pong table and other stuff in it, and um, or actually it was a foosball table and some other stuff in it, and, and none of us in editorial ever felt like we had the time to go over there. But uh, the sales team liked it, and the marketing team liked it, but um, that's beside the point. Anyway, uh, a few of my current coworkers, people who still work day to day with me, were actually around back then. They either had been working there for a little while or they joined shortly after I did. And they also got to experience what life was like under the convex era. And when I started, my job was pretty straightforward. I would receive an article assignment and I had a week to write the article and then a week to revise the article based on any editorial responses. And I'd have another article to write as I was revising the previous one. So I'd be working on one article and finishing up another one each week. So I'd research art for the articles as well. I would either request illustrations from some in-house talent that we had at the company, or I would select images on the web and then try to reach out to get permission from the rights holders to get permission to, to use the, uh, the, the photos on the site. This was in the old Wild West web days, when even taking that step was seen as being 
pretty conservative. There are a lot of people who are just grabbing images and posting them online without any effort to track down whoever owned the rights to that image. Now, these days, HowStuffWorks purchases licenses from various stock photo libraries to make sure that any images used on the site are done so with no possible ownership problems. Because one thing that can happen, and it has happened to lots of websites out there, is that they will post an image that they don't have the rights to, and then someone with the rights will end up making a big fuss about it. Legitimately so. I mean, it's the rights to their intellectual property. And then typically that sort of stuff can end up going to court. Usually it's settled out of court. But that's a problem no one wants to have because at at the very least it will probably mean taking the art down for an article and needing to replace it with something else. Uh, at, the, at the most it's going to mean a big payout that you're going to have to make to somebody when you could have avoided that just by going through something like the stock photo route. Now every week I would join my fellow writers there were really only two other writers back in those days. Tracy Wilson of Stuff You Missed in History Class was one of them. She was the senior writer on staff. Then there was me. And then we had a, another writer who wrote what we called question of the day articles. Those were much shorter articles that tried to answer a simple question each day. Uh, and then the edit editors also would meet there along with the interim head of editorial at the time. And we would talk about article ideas. We would have a pitch session. We'd have a conversation about which ones we thought were interesting, and then eventually the assignments would be based off of those discussions and then would go out to the various writers. Generally, before writing an article, the writer would create a list of questions that he or she expected the article to be able to answer. So you'd say, all right, you've got how washing machines work. Here are the questions I think this article needs to answer. So it might be, who invented the washing machine? How old is the washing machine? How does a washing machine clean clothes? Like these would all be the basic questions that you think an article should answer. And you would share that with the other members of the editorial team and they could add more questions so that you made sure that you had a, a good fleshed out article that addressed all the questions it should. Otherwise, you might overlook something. And it could be something simple. It could be something fundamental. In a lot of cases, the questions that would get added, either mostly by Tracy or myself, would be about physics and science. So not just how something works, but why does it work that way? What makes it possible? Uh, though we were often the, the sticks in the mud that would add those questions saying, well, it's not just enough for you to say it does this thing. We really do need to know how it does it. Anyway, it gave people the chance to create a framework for their articles as well, kind of thinking out what uh, structure their article should take. And we called this the initial approach. Then the writer would start pulling research, both online and offline, and get an understanding needed to write the article in question. The writing staff took up a relatively small amount of the space we had on the 15th floor of an office building, uh, the building we were in at the time. This office was in a part of Atlanta called Buckhead, uh, that has lots of shopping and restaurants. Buckhead mostly caters to a slightly higher-end crowd, uh, kind of a the upper middle class, maybe lower upper class kind of crowd. And it was also in close proximity to Mr. Arnold's home. I'm sure that was coincidental. The rest of our floor was taken up with web developers who were building out and supporting the features that made our site work. Very important, obviously. There's no website without them, and they were great. 
They were fantastic. And then we also had our sales and marketing teams in charge of making deals for web advertising and then, you know, a few others as well. Now, starting shortly after I joined, the company began to make a more concerted effort to build out the editorial staff. Like I said, when I started, Tracy and I were really the only full-time staff writers. A couple of years before I came to HowStuffWorks, the staff had been quite a bit larger. In fact, they were even working on really fun ideas uh, that were grouped under the the title Stuffo. These were articles that were more kind of hypothetical in nature and and a little more lighthearted, things like who would win in a fight, uh, Superman or a Jedi, that kind of stuff, like things that you wouldn't typically find on a How Stuff Works webpage. But that staff was long gone by the time I joined, and so was Stuffo, for that matter. Uh, so there had been departures and layoffs in the editorial department before my arrival, and it brought it down to that small size of just Tracy and I being the full-time staff writers. We also had a few freelance writers who would contribute articles occasionally, and we had the Stuff of the Day, or the Question of the Day uh, uh, writer as well. Now, then we had a guy named Connell Byrne who joined our team to head up the editorial department. We began adding more people to the editorial staff, people like Josh Clark and Chuck Bryant. They joined on, and behind the scenes, a big deal was slowly coalescing, though most of us working on articles only got hints that something was going on at the time. I'm sure there were other people on the editorial staff who knew much more than I did at the time. Uh, I tend to be pretty far behind on those sort of things. I'm not the most observant of people, I think, when it comes to corporate culture. But yes, there was a big, big thing going on. And that big thing was a deal between the Convex Group and Discovery Communications. That's the company that owns the Discovery Channel, the Science Channel, TLC, and more. Discovery, as it turned out, was struggling to create a digital footprint. The company was doing really well in cable, but companies are measured in growth year over year, typically. And Discovery was starting to run out of places to grow into, particularly in North America. It had pretty much reached saturation in the United States, and it was hard to grow in a place where most of the cable subscribing population already has access to your channels. The future appeared to be online anyway, so there was a strong incentive to invest in growing the company's internet presence. Discovery hadn't had a whole lot of success in that regard, despite being a big media company. And that led to the deal in which the Convex Group would sell HowStuffWorks to Discovery Communications for the princely sum of $250 million. Those promissory notes must have looked pretty darn good at that point. Remember, this was initially a $5 million investment, and then the value had crept down to a million dollars, and it was sold for $250 million. An incredible deal. Discovery told the Wall Street Journal that the plan was to leverage the HowStuffWorks website to, quote, uh, or as, quote, the cornerstone of an effort to bring its vast library of video content to the web, end quote. So, in other words, the way Discovery was looking at HowStuffWorks was largely as a platform for all of the video that Discovery was sitting on in its countless hours of production of various television series. Uh, that's not exactly how it turned out, and honestly, I'm a little thankful for that because if HowStuffWorks had only become a repository for uh, uh, Discovery videos, then I might not have a job. The acquisition did bring with it some painful changes, if I'm going to be brutally honest. Way back in the day, 
when we were under the Convex Group, how StuffWorks employees had a an unbelievably super sweet benefits package. I mean, it was incredible. It included a health plan, the basic health plan, in which the company paid the entire cost. There was no employee contribution apart from the regular copay stuff. So your monthly contribution was completely covered by your employer. It was just your copay that you had to pay. That was incredible. It was, it made medical care very affordable. And way back in those days, we would also get our paychecks every two weeks. It was just a biweekly schedule. Then we had the acquisition and things changed. Discovery couldn't operate like an internet startup that was run by entrepreneurs. And to be totally fair, I mean, this was a major company. They could not operate at that scale with those same sort of benefits. It just wasn't possible. So the health plan would mean employees would have to pay for coverage. There was now going to be an employee contribution each month. And that was an initial blow to a lot of folks on staff who hadn't really budgeted for that. And in addition, Discovery's pay schedule, uh, at least at the time, I don't know what it is now, but at the time it was fixed to be the 15th and the 30th of every month or the closest work day to whatever those dates are. You know, obviously February, it's going to be the 28th, not the 30th, etc. Well, to align with the discovery schedule, it meant that we were actually going to have to go one extra week without a paycheck just because of the way the calendar fell. So that was kind of scary for some people who weren't, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of money put aside. And so to go an extra week without a paycheck, plus knowing that some of that money was going into an employee contribution to a health plan was a little bit of a a tough pill to swallow. Now, as it turns out, Discovery made some concessions to ease the transition a bit. Uh, The company did try to make it a little bit easier for people. Uh, But I distinctly remember early on before that happened, the anxiety in our office was pretty palpable, especially among certain people. Uh, Some of us were fortunate, like I happen, my wife happens to have very good benefits. So I was able to rely on on that instead, uh, on her benefits. And so that, I I had a cushion there, but not everyone was in as privileged a, a position as I was. Now, our time with Discovery had its ups and downs. On the good side, we were able to launch podcasts for the very first time back in 2008. That was under Discovery. Stuff You Should Know was the first of our podcasts out of the gate, and it would become and remain our most popular show in the network. We also got the chance to work more in video occasionally. I remember shooting videos in which I juggled flaming torches. Uh, There was a series I shot with Chris Paulette, my original co-host, where we talked about a Windows mobile app for how stuff works that were a lot of fun. Uh, The app is, as far as I know, no longer a thing since Windows mobile isn't really a thing. But those videos still live on if you want to do a search for them. And they are goofy, just like me. We also butted up against some issues back then under Discovery, such as creating a lot of custom content for advertisers. Custom content is a fun way of saying the advertiser would really like you to write about this topic and they'll give you money for you to do it. And it's not always a bad thing. I don't, I don't mean to say it's automatically bad. It's not. If it's done right, it can end up being great because it benefits them, it benefits you, you can get more access to experts and insight than you would on a normal assignment. And so if it's a good assignment, it could be a great fit. But sometimes in the process of making a big sale, you end up promising some deliverables that might, in the long run, hurt your operations. And we had a couple of instances of that back in the discovery days. 
Uh, and I'm not blaming anyone here. I mean, those sales were big and they were important and they helped us stay in business. But at the same time, uh, they weren't great from a content perspective. We had to write a lot of articles that the editorial department felt were a little repetitive and uh, focused too much on some narrow topics. And um, that was not great. And and visitors were noticing too. They were We were getting emails about it. So it was a, a bit of a growing pains kind of thing. Now, it did mean that we were able to learn from the experience and establish a better policy regarding sales and custom content moving forward. So it was valuable in the long run, but it was a little rough. All right, I got a lot more to say. But first, since we're speaking of paying the bills, let's take a quick break. All right, I'm going to be real with you guys. One other thing that happened during the discovery years that was a bit tough on some of us was that there were more than a few rounds of layoffs in our time with Discovery. The HealthStuffWorks team was rolled into the overall Discovery digital team, and Discovery was struggling a bit, creating on working a holistic approach to the digital platforms. It had a lot of them, and it wasn't really uh, sure about what to do with all of them. We never really felt like we were part of a cohesive online strategy. And at one point... I realized that the editorial department had been reduced to the point that almost every single person who was still on staff also happened to have a podcast. The writers and editors who weren't on podcasts, most of them weren't on staff anymore unless they were at the most senior level of of editor. And I don't think there was anything personal about these decisions, but it was a tough thing to see and it also kind of painted a picture that podcasting might be the future for the company, but in, in a way that nobody wanted to see. I had a lot of good coworkers who were let go, and frankly, I miss them. They were great to work with. Anyway, we just kept plugging away. The podcasts were growing, but rarely were we running any advertising on them, so they still weren't really a revenue generator. And for a while, we were doing really well in search traffic. People would search topics on Google, and frequently our page would pop up in the first few results. And that's great, but it's also a double-edged sword. Because search algorithms can change, and what works well for you one day might not end up working so well the next day. And that's what happened a couple of times. Google would tweak the search algorithm, and sometimes we wouldn't show up in the top results, even if we had an article on that topic. And this illustrates an important point anyone running an internet business should keep in mind. Search engine optimization, or SEO, is important. It's often how people will end up finding your stuff. But relying heavily on search results means always having to play catch-up to the search engines in question, which, let's be honest, it's really Google that we're talking about here. So when Google changes, you have to change too, or else you'll see a drop in traffic. And this means your platform is dependent upon something outside of your own control. It's important to try and mitigate that by either using multiple platforms or establishing your own platform as a must-visit place. And that was always the goal, but it's easier said than done. We kept writing articles, and we kept recording podcasts. I kept going to CES every year. Our office in Buckhead got smaller. At one point, we occupied the 15th floor of an office building. Then we reduced down to about half of that floor, with the other half being leased out to another company. Then we moved down to the 11th floor and we took up even less space. As editorial staff, we went from having cubicles 
to workstations with little dividers between them. And now we don't even have the dividers. It was a series of changes that were difficult to get used to. We also would have to record podcasts in a corner office in those 11th floor days. And that corner office was above Peachtree Street, which is a major road in Atlanta. And so you could hear a lot of traffic noises. You could occasionally hear a uh, a whistle because we had Baton Bob, who is a local character here in Atlanta, who would march up and down Peachtree uh, blowing a whistle. The ambassador of smiles is fantastic to see on the street, but not necessarily someone you want to have whistling on your podcast every week. Uh, also, we would occasionally get protesters outside the building, not for how stuff works. They were protesting a different business that had its headquarters in the same building we were in, but you could still hear them occasionally. So if you listen to episodes from around 2013 or 2014, you might hear some of that noise. Also around that time in 2013, I got to start a series called Forward Thinking. Initially, it was solely a video series that looked at ways science and technology could make a positive impact on the future. And eventually, we launched a companion podcast, also called Forward Thinking, which I co-hosted with Lauren Vogelbaum and Joe McCormick. In addition to Forward Thinking, we were also shooting videos for series like Brain Stuff. Our video production really was beginning to ramp up. In fact, before we moved down to the 11th floor, we had the Eternal Meeting series of videos that Connell Byrne, you know, he actually went into a, a conference room. All of us kind of gathered around it. And for about 45 minutes, he gave us a bogus meeting using lots of, uh, of, of business speak that really meant nothing, but was amazing. And if you've ever seen the videos of Josh and Chuck where they're texting each other, and you're getting the little text messages as they are talking about some sort of interesting topic. That came from that long, long video shoot and was a phenomenal, phenomenal afternoon. In the spring of 2014, our time with Discovery Communications would come to an end. We were sold off to another company called Blue Cora, B-L-U-C-O-R-A. It's a company that's also uh, known as Infospace. In fact, it was originally called Infospace, but changed its name to Blue Cora in 2012 after it bought another company called Tax Act, and Infospace would become an, uh, a business unit within the company. Infospace is the search company that has its own pretty checkered past that I'm not going to go into here because it doesn't really play into our episode about how stuff works. Uh, but how stuff works was sold off for $45 million. That represented an 82% loss for Discovery Communications. Remember, they spent $250 million years earlier, seven years earlier to buy it. Now, all this is public knowledge, by the way. It's not like I'm divulging secrets. It was a pretty rough time for some of us working at the company, or at the very least it was for me. I can't speak for everyone else. Because we had gone from being part of a $250 million deal to seven years later being sold off for $45 million, which hurt. We weren't really sure where we would fit in with Blue Cora. The company was known for not just Infospace, but also for Tax Act, you know, financial services. And Blue Cora had purchased that back in 2012. We assumed that our role would be to keep creating articles and podcasts. And for the most part, we operated in Atlanta just as we had before. And we were still in Buckhead at that time. But then in 2015, our office would move to its current location in Ponce City Market, in a part of Atlanta known as the Old Fourth Ward, much closer to where I live, which is nice for me. I can now walk to work 
at about the same amount of time it took me to take public transportation to our old office. I'm not really saving time, but I'm getting a lot more exercise. Pont City Market used to be an old distribution center and storefront for Sears, and it's huge with 2,100,000 square feet of space. When we moved in, the building was mostly under construction, and today you can walk around the first two floors of the market and visit all these different shops and restaurants. It's really cool, but when we moved in, all of that was just bare concrete. In fact, it was a hard hat area, and we had a very narrow pathway we could take from the door to the bank of elevators we could use to get up to the floor that has our office on it. And I only mention this because if you listen to podcast episodes from around the summer of 2015, you might occasionally hear the telltale sounds of construction noises as the building was being prepared for new stores and residents during that time. We were producing a lot more video content during this time of our history as well. Not only were we still doing brain stuff and forward thinking, now we were also producing videos for How Stuff Works Now, which was a, a more news-oriented series. We also began to experiment with live streams, including How Stuff Works Now live streams and fun stuff like snack stuff, in which Lauren Vogelbaum and Ben Bolin would eat unfamiliar snack foods live on camera. I showed up for a few of those. Those were typically uh, streamed on Facebook. And we were starting to run ads on our podcasts at this time. And some shows were doing it pretty frequently. Stuff you should know, obviously, being one of the flagship ones. The forward-thinking video series was sponsored, but other shows were generating revenue through the tried-and-true YouTube model. And, of course, we were still writing articles for the website, plus writing more short-form material for the blog-like pages on How Stuff Works Now. Meanwhile, over at Blue Cora, things were changing. The company that had started off as Infospace was focusing more and more on financial services like its Tax Act business. And so the powers that be decided that the most logical thing to do would be to sell off the Infospace business to someone else and that How Stuff Works would go along with the deal. So in July 2016, Blue Cora announced it had sold Infospace and How Stuff Works to a company called Open Mail for $45 million. And yet again, this was a bit of a downer. I mean, the last time How Stuff Works had been sold, it was for $45 million all by itself. And now the company was being bought along with another company at that same price. And I want to stress that during all these changes, my coworkers were all striving to write and record the best stuff they could. The quality was never in question. Either among the editorial staff, the video staff, everybody was doing an amazing job. But it was really feeling pretty weird at this point, at least for me. I can't really speak for anyone else. On the bright side, Open Mail was super nice to us. The company seemed determined to give us space to create and support what we needed. Um, so we were able to, to try lots of different stuff. And by this time, many podcasters, myself included, would transition over to only researching, writing, and recording podcasts, not articles. It was really rare that I would write articles for the site after that point, though once in a blue moon I would still do it. The process of researching and writing an article for How Stuff Works is sort of like doing a term paper. You have to be very thorough, you have to be informative, and you have to make sure you have reliable sources when you write it. And it takes a lot of time to put a good article together. The same is true with podcasts. And as we focused more on doing shows, we found ourselves with less time to devote to writing articles. So we started using more freelancers for that. And occasionally, like I said, we would write an article ourselves. Open Mail would change its name to System One, but that was a tiny change compared to what was going to happen next. 
In August 2017, the company announced it was going to spin off the podcasting part of How Stuff Works as its own independent company, which became known as Stuff Media. The website part of the business, however, would remain with System One. And so our office was now made up of people working for two different companies, though there was still a ton of cross-pollination. And it's a weird thing for me to think about at this point because, you know, I, I started with How Stuff Works. I started with that company in 2007. I had started as a staff writer. I worked my way up to senior writer and then became a podcaster. But at that point, and by that point, I mean 2017, I was part of something else. Stuff Media was a slightly different company, though we continued to inhabit the same office space for the time being anyway. But it was clear things were changing. It was also clear that we'd start ramping up working on new shows before long, though at first we were really focused on just making sure we could foster the shows we had already been recording and give them the love and attention they needed. The spinoff of Stuff Media included a $15 million investment from a company called The Rain Group. Connell Byrne, who had led How Stuff Works for years before transitioning to Discovery Communications, returned to serve as president of the new media company. He's the guy responsible for getting us into podcasts, by the way. The hosts and producers owe a lot to him for getting the ball rolling, particularly since we went for years without having a way to actually generate revenue from the shows. I think a lot of leaders would have ditched the podcasts in favor of focusing on more short-term goals. In fact, I know that's the case because I've seen it happen at other places. But we were able to keep things moving long enough for podcasting to become a viable industry in its own right. By this time, we spun off from System 1, We were ranked as the second largest podcast publisher behind NPR in terms of streams and downloads. But I'm not done with our story just yet. I'll tell you more in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. The months went by and we continued producing podcasts. The website side continued doing their thing. And then in September 2018, It was announced that iHeartMedia, the audio company formerly known as Clear Channel, was acquiring Stuff Media for the reported princely sum of $55 million. By this stage, the Stuff Media network consisted of about 25 shows. And it was an interesting move, in part because at the time, iHeartMedia was still restructuring under Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, having accumulated a pretty gargantuan debt of around $20 billion dollars iHeartMedia was in the process of spinning off Clear Channel Outdoor Holdings, which was its outdoor advertising business. Think like, you know, digital billboards and stuff like that. That process became complete in May 2019. The acquisition received approval even as iHeartMedia continued to restructure its debt. As for the company itself, it is the largest owner of radio stations in the United States. It owns more than 850 stations. The company also produces and distributes many podcasts. The Stuff Media Podcast Network was seen as a way to develop that further. And boy, howdy, have we been producing a lot of new shows since then. We've launched numerous podcasts leading up to and following the move to iHeartMedia. Now, you still have the flagship Stuff Shows, like Stuff You Should Know, Stuff You Missed in History Class, Brain Stuff, Stuff Mom Never Told You, Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, and of course, Tech Stuff. I've heard rumors that at least one former Stuff show may be on its way back very soon, but I'll share more about that once it happens. 
Just wanted to seed a little excitement out there that something has coming down the pipeline. Now, in addition to the stuff shows, we have tons of other shows that we're producing. Some of them are produced in-house here in Atlanta, like Chuck Bryant's show Movie Crush, in which he sits down with various interesting people, talks to them about their favorite film as sort of a launching point for a conversation. Uh, we have Savor, which was formerly known as Food Stuff, that has hosts Lauren and Annie, and they're amazing. They just got back from an a incredible trip to Hawaii, where I understand they talk to almost 20 different people in, in interviews, so that's amazing. We have the Monster series. That's a collaboration with Tinderfoot Studios, and it focuses on serial killers. The first season was about the Atlanta child murders of the early 1980s. The second season was about the Zodiac Killer. We have Committed, a show about relationships that has some truly remarkable stories in it. Oh, and I do a, a show called The Brink with my friend Ariel Kasten, where we talk about make-or-break moments in business, and there are several others. And that's just a small sample of the shows we're doing here in Atlanta. We also have tons being produced in New York, D.C., Los Angeles, and other places. There's the Daily Zeitgeist, Culture Kings, Cabinet of Curiosities, Ask a Manager, Broken Hearts, Dressed, Ethnically Ambiguous, Happy Face, and more. We've got a ton of shows in development at various stages. And the process is an interesting one. So I guess I'm going to end this episode by kind of going through what we do behind the scenes when we want to develop a podcast. So it all starts with an idea. Frequently, the idea is being pitched by a person who plans on being involved in the show in some capacity, either as a producer or a host or sometimes both. The idea is fleshed out and typically shared with several others in the company, to make sure it sounds like a sustainable podcast that's worthy of the time and attention it will need to succeed. Because it does take a lot of time. You're talking about dedicating time to record, to edit, publish. So we want to make sure that the ideas sound pretty good before we start committing resources to them. This idea would then enter into the pitch process. And we have our shows organized by what we call verticals. You could think of them sort of like categories, but the categories aren't hard and fast, as some shows overlap different categories, or one vertical might have shows that you might imagine would fit in a different category, but they act as general guidelines. At the head of each vertical, you have an executive producer who's in charge of overseeing the development and deployment of podcasts, as well as someone who remains keyed in on how podcasts are doing. You also have a supervising producer. That's someone who's on the technical side of things, and is helping making sure that all this stuff can actually be done. During the pitch process, a show might go through some changes. And some of them can be really dramatic. Some can be relatively minor. Some shows require a lot of production. They might have interviews that require scheduling. It's a whole nightmare. If I were doing a, an interview-based show, I would probably need a lot of help because just scheduling that kind of stuff is super tricky. My hat is off to all the people who do incredible interview-based shows on our network. Uh, it is an amazing amount of work. But you also have stuff like transitions, you have music, you've got soundscaping, and more. But then you have other types of shows, like tech stuff. Those are pretty easy from a production standpoint. Those shows still have some of those elements. You know, occasionally, I might do an interview. We do have music. But there's not a whole lot of bells and whistles attached to a Tech Stuff episode, not nearly to the extent of a highly produced show. 
highly produced shows can be flashy, they can generate a lot of buzz, and if the show is good, it can easily justify the extra work needed to produce the podcast. But if it's a highly produced show and it's not doing well, it's probably not going to be around for very long because it also is a very visible drain on resources. So the head of the verticals choose which show pitches are going to move forward in the process. And this can get a bit brutal. You might have a potential slate of a dozen brilliant ideas, but you might only have the capacity to launch, let's say, two uh, of them per quarter. On the one hand, it's great to have the luxury of choice between lots of fantastic ideas. On the other, it stinks to have to say, you know, we can't do this show, at least not yet. But there are only so many hours in the day, and we have to be strategic in which shows get the green light. From that point, the showrunners, which might include writers, producers, and hosts, and some people might be wearing multiple hats for a single show, they'll go off and they'll develop the idea further. Typically, they'll record a pilot episode. The purpose of the pilot is to give an idea uh, to the production team about what the finished show is going to be like. And it may or may not ever be published, but it's meant to be sort of a prototype for the podcast itself. And frequently, upon listening to a pilot, executive producers and others might have a few notes. These are typically suggestions for changes to the show, and the notes might include format issues or a question about the voice of the show. It might be uh, questions about who is the intended audience, and do you think this show is speaking to that intended audience? Uh, it might just be a note that says, this is great, but it needs to be 20 minutes shorter. I get that note a lot, mostly from Tari. <laughs> Typically, the showrunners will then take those notes and then make another pass at it before they will start producing episodes in earnest. When it becomes clear that we're going to launch the show, when everything's set, when we said, all right, we know what it is, we know what it sounds like, we're ready to go, we're ready to start producing these, other factors also have to come into play. We have to secure URLs for each show, as well as social media accounts. We have to create logos for the shows. We have to assign a show to a marketing team. The sales team also has to be keyed in to the launch of new shows. We've got to make sure the publishing pipeline from back end to the end user is ready to go. All this has to be done far enough in advance so that when it comes time to publish the trailer, everything's already in place. And typically, that's how we start. We record a trailer that explains what the show is about, and we'll frequently plop that trailer into the feeds of other shows on the network, which I'm sure you've heard if you've been subscribed to any of our podcasts for any real length of time. This sort of cross-promotion can be incredibly useful, particularly since we're producing a lot of shows that complement one another. So if you listen to tech stuff and you like it, you're probably going to like Sleepwalkers, which is why we will run a trailer for Sleepwalkers on the tech stuff feed. It's not just to promote the show. It's to say, I know you guys like this stuff. This is something else you might really dig. You should check it out. And upon publication, we typically have a couple of episodes ready to download straight away. So instead of just uh, publishing episode one, we'll have maybe episodes one and two. And that way, listeners can check out more than a single episode right from the start. We want listeners to have a good idea of what a show is going to be like so they can make that determination about whether or not they want to subscribe to the podcast. In some cases, they may not. They may say, well, I've listened to two and I don't know, it's just not appealing to me. That's totally valid. But if you listen to two and you say, man, I really like this, and that's a good indication that, you know, you should subscribe to that show. Sometimes shows get a strong following and they grow from there. Other times shows might take a while before they catch on. Some shows might never get much attention at all. 
Producers sometimes have to decide to end a show if it has a small audience and the time being spent producing the show could be, you know, better used elsewhere, but it's a tough call. There are lots of other factors that can also affect the end result. For example, a show might have a small but loyal following, and advertisers might just love that show. And in those cases, you might say, well, let's keep it going and keep trying to grow this audience because it's got a lot of support behind it. It doesn't make sense to just end it. But if a show isn't getting much traction and if you can't sell ads for it, it's probably not going to be around very long. This also gets a bit more complicated when you talk about the differences between ongoing shows like Tech Stuff, ones that publish every week, and then shows that are divided up into seasons. With seasons, you tend to get a pretty big bump in subscribers when a show generates some buzz when it first premieres, but you're not likely to keep adding at that same pace when you are between seasons. So that affects things a bit. On the flip side, for a show like Tech Stuff that's been running for years, you're not likely to see a big bump in numbers, unless one of my episodes gets mentioned on some larger outlet, or if I land a killer interview with someone important that a lot of people want to hear more about. And there are a lot of other moving parts to a podcast network. The marketing team is constantly finding ways to promote shows and to get them to a wider audience. The social media team works hard to reach out to our communities and keep them engaged. The sales team is responsible for landing all those ad deals that pay the bills and allow us to actually make these shows. And while we're supporting all the shows that are already out there, we're always in the process of making more. Meanwhile, my former coworkers over on the website side, are no longer in our office. Though they aren't far away, they're a couple of floors above us now. They still produce content for the website, and they do an incredible job with it. If you haven't been to How Stuff Works in a while, or even if you've never been there, I encourage you to check it out. They are producing fantastic articles and videos, and they are genuinely great people, and I miss seeing them every day. I'm very fortunate to have so many cool folks working on the Stuff Media iHeart side. We keep adding new people as we focus on making existing shows better and bringing new shows to you guys. It's an exciting time for us. We've received a lot of love from the iHeart Media side. Now, as I record this, it's nearly on the 11th anniversary of Tech Stuff's launch. It's I'm actually just past it. So it's pretty amazing that this podcast has been through so many changes. You know, what it really tells me is that you guys are incredible. I have incredible listeners because without you, this show would have gotten the axe a dozen times over. We've had format changes. We've had host changes. We've gone through ownership changes more times than I can count. And you guys have remained constant. And that is the reason why I'm still doing this show. So thank you all for listening. I greatly appreciate it. And that wraps up this episode about how stuff works and, uh, and you know, how things are going now that we're a, a podcast network arm of iHeartMedia. I am excited to see where things go from here. It has been a pretty amazing experience so far, one that I think has been more positive than anything else. I've had a lot of opportunities to talk to some really smart people in the uh, mass communications world. And it's nice to get some validation that some of the things I've been doing have been right all along. And it's great to get guidance on how I can do other stuff better. So I consider that a positive experience overall. If you guys have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. 
or you can drop me a line on social media. Just go on over to techstuffpodcast.com. That has links to the social media presence as well as an archive of all of our past episodes and more information about yours truly, if for some reason you gotta know more. Plus, there's a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show and we greatly appreciate it. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 